Me going out there was just about principle, about defeating a fascist death cult that is killing Yazidis, trying to wipe out diversity in the Middle East, trying to erode the culture. This is not just Syrian history, this is our history too. This is something that we can never get back. And these illiterate monsters, they are destroying everything that is great about being human, about humanity. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Mesa Gifford, which is the adopted name of a Briton who went to fight with the Kurds against ISIS. Mesa is a member of that small band of Westerners who was brave enough to travel to Syria to join the fight against ISIS. In 2014, he left his rather nice life as a currency trader in London and headed to the bloody war zone of Syria to align himself with Kurdish forces who were standing up to ISIS barbarism. He has fought with the YPG, the Kurdish People's Protection Units, And he has said that he has been willing to die and kill in the fight against ISIS. He has fought alongside the Syrian Democratic Forces who have been at the forefront of the fight against ISIS tyranny in Syria. He is currently working to establish a medical aid charity to assist victims of the Syrian civil war. And he has also become a media figure. And in recent weeks, he has defended the British government's strong opposition to allowing ISIS brides, including Shamima Begum, to return to the UK. He recently said that Shamima should not set one single foot in the UK. He has described it as complete nonsense, the idea that she is a victim who was groomed into joining ISIS. Mesa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. I want to kick off by asking you how this all started, because the, the the media coverage of your transformation from a, you know, pretty comfortably off Britain to someone who was fighting uh, against ISIS has been full of intrigue. They're wondering how this happened, how this came about. There's lots, there was, has been articles in the Times, in the Daily Mail, all of which spin the line the currency trader, public school education, comes from Cambridge and suddenly finds himself in these towns most people couldn't find on a map or even pronounce, fighting against the most barbaric uh, death cult of our times. So how did that come about? Well, I think everyone at home will be able to remember what they were doing in 2014, particularly when uh, Mosul fell. And ISIS came on everyone's radar and the media had a frenzy over it. Every day they were regurgitating ISIS propaganda, throwing it in our faces. The young journalists having their heads cut off, the young men and women being butchered, women being sold in cages. And I was just horrified by it, as was most people at home. The difference is, though, I was thinking about the region, about where this was going The possibility that ISIS would spread into Lebanon, into Jordan and other places, the increase in attacks on the West would be fueled by this growing violence in the Middle East. And I was just shocked that Britain and America just weren't doing anything to combat it. In 2014, in fact, the Americans were debating whether to help at all, whether or not this was al-Malaki's fault, the former president of Iraq's, whether airstrikes were even worth committing to the region. So it just came to me that The best way I can help is to utilise my own privilege as a British guy, as uh, someone who's sympathetic to the local people, who who is articulate enough to express what they want to the West, that I could go out there, fight alongside them and do two things. One, take the fight to ISIS, a a repulsive cult of death, which many people hopefully can sympathise with. And the other thing is to raise awareness to those that believe in secular democracy and progressive values, that the very people who are actually going to defeat ISIS and create a long-term solution to the Syrian crisis. One thing that I've read in in the coverage of your experience is that one of the key drivers behind your decision to go there was the genocide of the Yazidis, mm-hmm. particularly around Sinjar, which I think was a, a very transformative moment, not only for you as an individual, but also for many people in the West who were thinking to themselves, even I found myself thinking this, and I'm not someone who supports Western military intervention overseas, but even I found myself thinking... Why is there not more 
discussion and concern and action in relation to what seems to me to be a pretty straightforward act of barbarism against a fairly defenseless people. So so one of the things I've read about you is that as part of your job, you one of the things you had to do was read newspapers quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And so you were reading a lot of the stuff about what was happening in Syria and also what was happening to the Yazidi people. W- was that a key trigger for you? And what and if so, what was it about that that made you think this is too much? Well, it was, I think I can remember a few stories that are with me today. And in fact, how the Yazidis were treated is something that still upsets me, fuels me with anger. And I have this desire to urge the British government and anyone who believes in in freedom, democracy, in the values of the West to hunt these people down and make sure we deliver justice. And it's th- it's the treatment of the Yazidis, the fact that we saw them in cages being sold in marketplaces. Girls as young as three years old were sold. People older than 40 were shot alongside their husbands and alongside the young boys. The youngest boys were actually taken by ISIS to be turned into suicide bombers and to be corrupted and everything else. And the, so the Yazidi people have suffered a genocide. And I I couldn't understand, watching all this, that the British government didn't put 3,000 British troops on Sinjar Mountain when 20,000 of uh, of these Yazidi people were there just to evacuate them. I'm not saying that British troops should have gone in, and I'm not saying the Americans should have gone in either. And I don't advocate uh, large-scale foreign policy expeditions or ventures abroad. Mm. But there is moments in history when bad things are happening from Rwanda to events in uh, sort of Eastern Europe uh, during the 90s and 80s that action could have averted certain disasters and we failed to do anything. And I think in Syria, there was a clear example was the fact that Yazidi people are defenceless, ancient people who have their own religion, who are peaceful and have literally lived in Syria for a thousand years and they were being wiped out, and apparently nothing from the British government. I just think that uh, by going myself, by standing in solidarity with the Kurds, who were the ones who liberated the Kurds from Sinjar Mountain, and then raising their voice in the West and saying, right, local people can take the fight to ISIS, they can defend these ancient peoples of the Middle East, Uh, we just need to support them with airstrikes, we just need to support them with political sort of support and military aid. So, yeah, there's a number of things that we could have done, but there was the early days were a series of missed opportunities. I want to ask you in a moment about why you decided to take action and then also what kind of action you ended up taking. But before that, why is it, do you think, that the the British and other Western forces didn't take action, particularly in relation to the UCD crisis, which struck many people, you and many others, as a grave crisis, a grave humanitarian crisis, a people who don't generally go to war, suddenly finding themselves under assault by a virtually a neo-fascistic movement. It struck many people as a very clear-cut crisis of humanity. What is it, do you think, that was making the British government and other Western governments reluctant to do even the fairly straightforward things of providing humanitarian assistance or guiding people off the mountain in, in a protective way? I think we have suffered, to some degree, an element of war fatigue since... Iraq and Afghanistan, which is a shame because I do believe in a sense of internationalism, that the British government shouldn't be afraid to stand up and to to protect people when crises emerge. And that is primarily down to a failure of leadership. David Cameron, Mm. I think, has something to answer for there, whereby he could have done something, but he didn't. Uh, so it's just a shame. And this was many years ago, and there's, and it's very easy to cast stones now. But I think one of the frustrating things is that it took so long, literally years, to start supporting the people who were f- the most successful against ISIS. So, uh, and that is down to uh, part David Cameron, but also down, much more importantly down to Obama, who in the early days started a, a program called the Training Equip Program with Turkey. Uh, he spent $500 million arming FSA rebels. Much of that equipment program ended in complete disaster. Much of the equipment went to groups like the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda because they were purloined, stolen by people on the ground. Also, the the nature of the forces was that it was was more mercenary. They weren't really fighting for anything. Turkey was far too keen to employ people, many of whom came from either nationalistic or Islamist organisations before joining the FSA. So it was just a disaster. And then on the other side of the country, in the eastern part of the country, we had the YPG, which from its earliest beginnings was always 
multi-ethnic and multi-religious, primarily the fact that 20% of them have always been Arabic forces, uh, also Christian forces through their lot in with the Kurds early on as well. The YPG, although it's been painted as a purely Kurdish organization, was multi-ethnic, it was progressive, it had women fighting on the front line, it was calling for internationals from around the world to join them. And we were just far too slow, far, far too yeah. slow to recognize them as, good, as the good guys, as the people we wanted to support. So I think the international volunteers have done wonders there to actually improve the image, the image crisis of the YPG and STF in the, in the eyes of the West. I personally was always quite concerned about the FSA and the attempt to by the West to drum up this kind of anti-Assad army because I always I, I thought to myself this is going to end in disaster mm. Be- and, and also because at the same time there already existed these forces who were as you say multi-ethnic tolerant interested in democracy in a genuine way mm. who seemed to me to be far more deserving of the support of westerners whether it's western governments or western citizens than a lot of the elements who aligned themselves with the FSA or who benefited mm. from the arming of those groups by western governments Let's just go back a little bit. So mm-hmm. you, you see these things happening, you read about them, particularly about the uh, genocide of the Yazidis and, and other atrocities that are taking place. What is the moment or what is the flashpoint mm-hmm. at which you decide to pack up your life here, which was a relatively nice life, and throw your lot in with people you've never met before, a country you've presumably not been to before, what is the thought process that mm-hmm. goes into that? Sort of deconstructing my life. Because <laughs> yeah. uh, that's essentially what I did, actually, in the early days. I, I sort of realised, I dared myself to go out and join the YPG when I realised they were calling for international volunteers. Mm. So I really did have to sort of quit my job. I had to get rid of my flat. I had to unpack my life a little bit and then throw myself into the Middle East and into the arms of the YPG and later SDF. But I suppose actually to to give an understanding of what my thought process was as well, we can almost take a step back to your last question about sort of interventions in the Middle East and everything else. Because one of the things that really upsets me is the the complete failure of the Arab Spring. And what Mm. I mean by that is everyone took advantage. The Arab Spring was a burst of human energy. There were people coming out into the streets and saying, uh, we want democracy, we want freedom and equality. There was uprisings from everywhere, from Libya to Syria and everything else. And obviously, when cracks appear in society, it's exploited. It's exploited by fundamentally and more recently and more appropriately ISIS and fundamentalist extremists. They did exploit it to a huge degree and and thrived because of the Arab Spring. But it was also exploited by the West as well, who saw an opportunity to bring down regimes to start influencing people of the Middle East in their own way, Mm. which was a terrible mistake and caused much of the violence and sort of targeting Assad, throwing their lot in with the FSA without properly uh, understanding who the FSA was, what they were fighting for and everything. So there was just a fundamental geopolitical mistakes made by naive political leaders in the West. David Cameron was renowned for interfering with the Libyan crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, There was a number of military guys said how he would sort of sit with his arms on the table, sort of uh, movie-like, dictating and asking questions about where British assets were and how they were taking the fight to to the Libyan forces. And I just think that he was unqualified to do that and he didn't get the right advice early on. So there is a category of errors early on all across the Middle East. And I've long been a fan of my politics, of, of the region, and I've worked for a number of years before I worked in the city for charitable organisations and political organisations around the world, more, most notably in Africa, uh, really, less in the Middle East, but it gave me some experience. So by watching all of this happen and just thinking to myself, why isn't the voices of the local people emerging in the West in a really positive way. Why aren't we articulating their views? Instead of implanting American democracy on them, why don't we talk about what kind of democracy they want? Yeah. Because it's, it's like an ill-fitting glove. Half of the countries in the Middle East are artificially made. They aren't uh, natural countries. Countries like Jordan are literally the, uh, yeah. a fiction of imagination of, of our forebears 100 years ago uh, during Sykes-Picot and others. So when you manufacture a nation, it's no wonder that dictatorships have thrived because what you've seen is typically the tyranny of the minority, whether it's Saddam Hussein in Iraq, the Sunnis dominating the Shias, or whether it's the Alawites under Assad dominating the Sunni in in Syria. So that's what's thrived because of history and everything else. But if you take 
American democracy and force it on those countries, what you tend to do is you make it tyranny of the majority against the minority. So, for example, in Iraq, we, we twisted it around. Saddam Hussein was a minority under the, the Sunnis who dominated the Shiites. Then, post-American independence, the Shiites dominated the Sunnis, mm. uh, which caused a lot of friction amongst the Sunni community, helped ISIS thrive and everything else. So uh, it's clear that uh, we've got to start fundamentally looking at the nature of the states in the Middle East in the first place yeah. and, and what, what kind of democracy will make their countries thrive and, and be peaceful and actually have a, a bright future. One of the things, taking it back to Syria for a moment, one of the things that I was really I admired about the the YPG and what they advocated was literally devolution max, a sense of decentralization and federalization that meant that countries took power away from the the state and gave it to the communities. So the Kurds have never argued for independence in Syria, for example. They've always said that we'll remain part of a Syrian state, but we want powers for how to educate our kids. We want to be able to learn Kurdish. We want to actually come up with policies and everything else that actually will benefit us as a people. There's so much to say about the politics in the Middle East, so I won't go too much into it. But witnessing all that and realising that there is something that I can do, and that's to go out and and articulate those points of view, suddenly meant that I started to research who are the people who are fighting ISIS, Mm. who weren't uh, who weren't listed as terrorist organisations and that were supported by the West. And the YPG kept coming up. Mm. Uh, the fact that they had sort of feminism, they had uh, real feminism, which is young women who are uh, true equality, who are fighting on the front line, who are very much part of the system, where they even go so far as to have co-presidents for every single political and military position. They don't have one president for the Federation of Northeastern Syria now. They actually have a female and a male president. So all of these things are wonderful things. And it's something that I wanted to raise in the West. And, I, and I'm just very lucky that I bagged the, the winning horse, whereby I arrived in 2015. <laughs> ISIS were no doubt winning at the time, but we took the fight to ISIS. I joined the YPG, I fought on the front line, and the Americans started to support them. And now I can sit here with you today talking about how the American and British-backed SDF is really doing great things in Syria. I actually think that's an incredibly useful overview of where politics in the Middle East is at and in the region more broadly. And I completely agree with you that the wasted opportunity of the Arab Spring, I think, is one of the most depressing mm-hmm. human stories of recent years. Mm-hmm. Because what you had were were huge, vast numbers of people willing to take great risks to overthrow the largely post-war imposition of tyrannical regimes or uh, at least kind of out-of-touch governments on them. But it was kind of treated in a quite ham-fisted way by Western observers and by Western interveners who then kind of skewed these things in a problematic direction. I think Libya is actually a pretty good example of that, mm-hmm. probably the most extreme example, where uh, in keeping with the Arab Spring more broadly, you have a pretty solid uprising against the Gaddafi regime, but then it gets completely skewed by various other actors and forces getting involved to such an extent that Libya is now a, a disaster zone. And Islamists have a a large amount of influence there. And I want to touch on some of that stuff with you in a moment, particularly on the question of the kind of uh, made-up nature of Middle Eastern countries, Mm -hmm. in contrast, in fact, with Kurdistan, which, on the other hand, is a pretty real nation, Mm -hmm. but doesn't have a physical manifestation in the global sphere. But we'll come on to that in a second. You talked there about being someone who fought on the front line of one of the more successful expressions of um, Middle Eastern rebellion, which is the YPG and the Kurdish desire to assert themselves against this kind of barbaric death cult, which was spreading through Iraq to begin with, and then Syria too. On this podcast, we don't often talk to people who fought on the front line against <laughs> Syria. So if you will allow us to ask a couple of questions about that. Of course. To what extent did you throw yourself into that frontline activity? And uh, what was it like being there in the kind of fire zone mm-hmm. of the war against ISIS? Well, it was, it was an amazing experience. I mean, I often think to myself that I'm a fly on the wall, that I've had a frontline seat to something wonderful in the Middle East. So I crossed over in 2015 into Syria, literally my New Year's Eve I spent in the mountains of northern Iraq, crossed over on New Year's Day. Within a couple of days, I had already met up with five other international volunteers. We were already at a a YPG, I say training camp, but it was just a a facility where we were able to meet together, we were able to look, uh, we were issued uniforms, issued 
created uh, our own weapons. Back in 2015, you could actually you had much more freedom what you could choose. They literally opened up their armories to Westerners and said, "What do you pick? What you want?" <laughs> it's a very different apparently now, where each international right. volunteer arrives and spends like a month in training and then. Uh, and then is issued a weapon in accordance to their abilities. But in, in back in 2015, it was a little bit more, what's the word, amateurish, right. a little bit more like a militia. Mm. And so within a week, we were packed off to the front line. But if I'm honest, that front line was a bit of a joke. ISIS were miles away. Uh, they just weren't there. I couldn't even, I could bet, you couldn't even see them on the horizon. We're in a little village, uh, I forget what it's called, just north of Sin, uh, Sinjar Mountain, where already the Yazidis had been liberated from it. And we were just, they were going through a process of clearing people off the mountain and, ma- and pushing ISIS away. Way. But it was a period of very little major operations. There was a town called Tilhamis, which was about 20 kilometers <coughs> west of the position I found myself. And the year before, the YPG had tried to attack it alongside Christian allies, uh, because there's a lot of Christians in that area. And unfortunately, ISIS had counterattacked and killed dozens and dozens right. of people. They didn't have any air support from the Americans. And ISIS uh, were able to utilize captured uh, Iraqi tanks to great effect, encircling YPG positions and literally kill it, massacring them. So the YPG's record wasn't good in taking back to Hamas. And I was told over the period of a, a month and a half, every other week, we're going to tell Hamas, we're going to tell Hamas, this is the big operation, it's coming, it's coming. And it never came. And it just meant that over those weeks, I was incredibly bored. I was able to sit and work with other international volunteers to train each other, to get an understanding of how we would operate within the Kurds. Because we realized that obviously we didn't speak Kurdish. And the Kurds, many of them were young women and men who were trained in a militia way, literally with just a few weeks worth of training, put in a uniform and packed off to fight. Yeah. So in the, in the international volunteers were actually special forces compared to some of the right. local fighters. Right. And quite literally, in some respects, my friend Bruce, an American guy, was a former US Ranger. Another friend of mine, Nathan, was a British guy. He had just left the French Foreign Legion. He had spent seven years there, served in Afghanistan, left as a corporal. He was in two rep as well at Parachute Regiment uh, in the Legion. So he had only just left as well. And because we came from France, we came from Britain, we came from America, training also meant that we could also share an understanding of what sort of drills and what sort of orders we would give. And and me having the least military experience of the lot, I was obviously had my eyes open and my mouth closed. So we did a a lot of training. And then in February, the end of February 2015, 200 Kurds turned up at our position the 30 Kurds that I was with and myself jumped on the back of their cars and off we went. First to Sinjar Mountain, met up with Peshmerga fighters there and we cleared ISIS villages all along Sinjar Mountain with the Peshmerga and then we went up north. And it was very similar to the um, the Maginot Line, the Germans simply going around it. We, by going into Iraq and coming up underneath Tilhamas, the Islamic State fighters couldn't run away fast enough. And this was also something else that had changed was the Americans had started, for the first time, American planes were in the air. They weren't being physically called in. They were, I've described them in the past as like sharks, just circling in the air. And every time they saw an ISIS tank or an ISIS dushka, which is a 50 caliber weapon, drive out of a village, then it was immediately airstruck. So that just meant that with that air support and with the surprise and the sort of ferocity of the attack, the Islamic State really didn't stand a chance. And that was the first time I was able to fight and to pull my own, the trigger of my weapon. And that was two months after I first arrived. So there's another thing is a lot of international volunteers don't realize how boring time can be over there. It's just, it honestly is sometimes weeks of doing nothing, staring at an ISIS village 400 meters away. And then all of a sudden one night they tell you to walk towards that village and that's when hell breaks loose. So yeah, and I mean, the the early fighting in 2015 was typically at range. It was, uh, we were going into dusty villages for, for the next four months, clearing dusty villages, calling in airstrikes. And a couple of guys who I was with were shot and killed but um, they, it wasn't the street-to-street fighting that we would later get. It was more just the fact that ISIS were leaving Kurdish villages. What the Kurds did, which was quite smart, was they would tend to go in in a pincer movement, always leaving a room for ISIS to get out. Yeah. And by doing that, the, the ISIS commanders no doubt thought to themselves, these are Kurdish villages, it's, it's very flat and open fields. 
these aren't the areas that we want to keep and fight over. We want to fight over the conservative Arab areas whereby we can entrench it. We can try and indoctrinate the locals to fight with us. We can fight in the larger cities where uh, the airstrikes will be, will, could be used to less effect this sort of stuff. So in the early, for the first six months, it was just chasing ISIS through the deserts of northern Syria and liberating huge areas of territory. And then everything started to change in 2016 when I went away, rested, came back, and I had a whole new uh, vision and idea of what was needed on the ground. The first six months was about teaching myself what the Kurds needed. And one of the things I noticed was just like any militia, they were disorganized, they didn't have the infrastructure of a proper military, and needless deaths were occurring because people were being shot and then dumped in the back of cars and not being driven to hospital. The, the crucial mm. window, the survival window uh, that's needed uh, to treat people effectively was being lost just by, not because they didn't care, simply they just didn't understand. Mm. And when I came home, I was able to bring together Americans, Brits, all of whom had military experience. Uh, we arrived in Syria. I'd already used my, the leverage I had with the Kurds now and the respect that I'd sort of earned from them the year before to get a couple of ambulances that we'd captured from Assad that were literally rotting. Uh, they were former military ambulances. They were rotting in a, uh, a garage somewhere. I had them fixed up. I created a facility. I ordered 200 IFAT medical kits. I ordered large uh, battlefield packs, which my guys used. And what we did for the for, the, for those first six months of that that year, we trained hundreds of local Kurds in, mm. in battlefield medicine and we handed them each this small medical pack. And then we also, whenever there was an operation, we were able to go to the front line and bring people behind mm. back and get them uh, treated. So it was just, that was suddenly I felt myself helping in a much more positive and real way. As I said, hundreds of Kurds got crucial battlefield training. And I think that came at the perfect time because we went on operations in places like Shadadi and people were triggering IEDs and it was just incredible and both heart-wrenching and, and soul-destroying to, to be called uh, forward, to jump in your car, to race into a, into a village where fighting is still ongoing, to, to be running through buildings to get to the injured casualty who's sometimes missing a leg, sometimes missing a head, and we're just, just evacuating a dead body, and, and to get them out of that environment and back home. But it's also amazing to see how the Kurdish commanders were treating us. Yeah. They started; to, they could see that international volunteers were, were doing genuinely good work and were saving their lives. So the goodwill just increased massively over that time period. Then things started to change, though, because as the Kurds entered, crossed the Euphrates and entered Manbij at the end of my second trip, suddenly... I'd already left my medical unit. I had actually applied to join a different unit. My unit went there, treated something like 200 casualties in, in one month. I went off and fought on the front line in Mambej, treating people directly and then sending them back to the ambulances. And hundreds died, hundreds right. and hundreds of Kurds died because the fighting just became more aggressive. The Islamic State realized that by taking Mambej, the Kurds were closing off the border with Turkey and that meant no more supplies, no more foreign fighters would be coming to Iraq anytime soon. So they, there was no chance for them to take that window anymore. They were going to fight mm. to the death. But then my final year, I went to Raqqa, and that's when things really started to change. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast and Spike's other podcasts, and also the articles and essays that Spike publishes every day, please think about giving us a donation. Spike's content is free, and we want to keep it free, and donations really help us to do that. Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I want to ask you about Raqqa, uh, because that's like the great showdown, and then you have, obviously, Bagus, which is like the final showdown. But, mm -hmm. the, but one thing I wanted to ask you in relation to what you've just said is, and I think your contribution of the kind of medical focus for people who are on the front line and who need to treat their wounded soldiers incredibly seriously is a an, an incredible contribution to have made to that part of the world and to the Kurdish people. But in relation to what you said, would it be fair to say that the thing that drove you to Syria was a desire to take the fight to ISIS, mm -hmm. and but the thing that kind of kept you there or keeps you interested in it is a desire to assist the Kurdish people, or is there a mix between those two things? A mix between, I think, right. I think in the first instance, yeah, to fight ISIS. I also, from day one, with growing 
determination, wanted to raise awareness for those local forces. Uh, I can remember on the very first day, a guy called uh, General Maslam, he is actually currently the leader of the SDF. Back then, he was just a, a, a YPG commander. He was the very first commander I met in Syria. And on that first day, I said to him, look, I'm going to be... As an international volunteer, I'm one of the least experienced. I spent a few days in the territorial army. I was in the cadets at school, but we're talking (laughs) nowhere near like a former soldier. And if I'm going to help you guys at all, it'll be through raising awareness. It'll be, uh, and I want to fight through solidarity. And and I don't mean to romanticize it at all, but, but with a sense of internationalism, akin to the American Eagles during the Second World War who joined the RAF before the Americans joined in, or indeed even the internationalists that went to Spain to fight yeah. against Franco. So I, I, th- there's already a rich history of internationalists fighting for worthy causes. So me going out there was just a princ- about principle, about defeating a fascist death cult that is killing Yazidis, just trying, trying to wipe out diversity in the Middle East, trying to er- erode the culture. And I and I don't mean to go off on one, this is one of the things that is like a knife in my heart, is the eradication of ancient symbols mm-hmm. of Babylonia, Palmyra, the blowing up of the Temple of Baal. This is not just Syrian history. This is our history yeah. too. This is something that we can never get back. And by these illiterate monsters who have no appreciation for the beauty of this history, who are doing all they can to eradicate it and destroy it, they are destroying everything that is great about being human, about humanity. And these are, these are my, some of my core values. I often don't speak like this because I'm, I don't like to equalize or talk too much about the erosion of the culture and the history when so many people have died because yeah. uh, it seems a little insensitive. But still, it's, it's one of the major things that drove me out there. And I actually think there's a lot of crossover. I mean, of course, the destruction of a human life is always going to be worse, Mm -hmm. even than the destruction of a temple that's been there for 2,000 years. That's the value we attach to human life. But I think one of the most graphic illustrations of ISIS's neo-fascistic tendencies and their profound misanthropy, misanthropy is not even strong enough a word, was precisely their destruction of places like Palmyra and other places, which they did in an incredibly showy way look at us destroying centuries of human tradition and human advance and human progress and human ideas so i think that was actually a a central part of uh, what not offended that's not even strong enough a word but what horrified Mm -hmm. a lot of observers was precisely the destruction of culture and tradition as well Mm -hmm. as human life which which is their mentality their mentality and this is this is the sense of naivety in the west at the moment particularly amongst certain commentators in britain as we talk about returning isis fighters returning brides and everything else they fundamentally misunderstand or or just simply don't understand what ISIS is and what it stands for. It is quite literally a death cult. It believes that it is bringing about the end of days. If you listen to their slogans, the fact that we, we love death as much as you love life, yeah. we will be in Rome soon. We're, they bring up a lot of historical and biblical or Quranic influences for, for what they do. And th- there's, there's a certain mentality amongst ISIS fighters that even any human in the West, any normal, decent human being... Can, can barely get their head around. And what it is, is that they, the reason they can justify decapitating small children, uh, decapitating even innocent people, it doesn't matter to them, is that if they kill a, an infidel or if they kill uh, an innocent person, it doesn't matter, the innocent person will go to heaven anyway. They're actually almost doing them a favour. Literally no one is safe, whether you're Muslim, whether you're a Christian or whatever. If you're against ISIS, you, they will... Uh, eradicate you. They will destroy everything about you, your culture. They will enslave your women. They will kill you at the very least. And they will quite literally also strap suicide devices onto their own children and send them forward. This is the the depth of depravity that these people suffer. And the idea that people who go from the West, who may have had difficult childhoods, they may have been young when they went, they may have had psychological problems. But to say that they've joined this, this, this death cult and that they've had four years of military and ideological training, that they are in any way less dangerous uh, before they went out, is so incredibly naive. So everything about how, what they've tried to build in Syria, to the destruction of the heritage, to the treatment of the local people and their own people, tells you that these people, they are there to destroy everything that makes us the West and, and makes us good and makes us believe in democracy, equality, fairness and progressive values and everything that we hold dear. So uh, we had to treat them with extreme caution. Yes, and extreme prejudice too, in terms Mm -hmm. of the war against them. I agree with all of that. And actually, that's very useful, because I want to shift the discussion on slightly Mm -hmm. to the question of the West and its 
reluctance in some cases, in my view, to condemn ISIS in the way it ought to be condemned or to take action against ISIS in the way it sometimes deserves to have action taken against it. So you say, I, I think that's a very apt comparison between individuals like you and other Westerners who went to join the Kurds or the SDF in the fight against ISIS, the comparison of those people with the international brigades who went to join the Spanish people who were fighting against Franco. I think that's actually probably the best comparison. The difference, of course, is that Western leftists, or whatever we want to call them, Western liberals, Western leftists, romanticise the international brigades who went to Spain, justifiably Mm. so, they were very brave individuals, but uh, always seem a bit more cagey and reluctant about validating the individuals who went to join the Kurds and other forces yeah. against ISIS. So there's, there's a disparity there. Mm-hmm. I wonder, does it point to a possibility that there are some Westerners, Western leftists, Western observers, Western commentators, who for some reason are a bit iffy mm-hmm. about condemning ISIS in the way that you and I might condemn ISIS? I think there's a, been a fundamental shift in the left and its values and uh, the direction that it's going. Even a, a friend of mine, David Graeber, a really good anarchist professor at uh, the London School of Economics, he's written about his just despair at the lack of solidarity amongst the left. I think there is a sense amongst the left that they can't support genuine progressive revolutions mm. in the Middle East because they want they they can't bear to think of themselves in any way on the same page as the United States or mm. uh, in any way against Muslims or anything like that. And that, that's the one of the <laughs> fundamental and sort of racist attitudes of the left is that they they quite literally compare uh, Islam and ISIS to such a degree. Yeah. And, and, and they almost put ISIS and, and those who speak for them as spokespeople for, for Islam. So, criticize, so genuine criticisms of uh, what's going on in the Middle East or attitudes in the Middle East and things like this are shouted down uh, by the left. They're far too concerned about arguing over whether Red Nose Day is a fascist organization <laughs> or, or, or whether or not um, Lord Nelson is a, a white, white supremacist. While the left rips itself apart, and debates really vacuous and empty and self-serving policies and endeavours. What's going on in the Middle East, which is genuinely a feminist revolution, which mm. is, it's not American-imposed. This the, What's American-imposed is the state that emerged in Iraq and the subsequent breakdown in order and peace in, the, in, in Iraq. What's genuinely from the region is democratic confederalism, is what the Kurds are fighting for, uh, the SDF. These are local people who are saying, actually, we want feminism. We want women equal in society in the most conservative region in the world. Uh, we want women to take a very equal equal say in the future of the region. There's nothing not to support, yeah. basically. And the fact that they are so silent in the yeah. West is completely beyond me. I think it's almost as if all the things they claim to stand for, which is female equality mm-hmm. and the right of minority groups not to be repressed, far less wiped out, all those kind of pretty good, progressive, decent values that people should be, women should be equal to men, Mm -hmm. minority groups should not be mistreated in any way whatsoever. All those values seem to collapse in the face of the question of Islam Mm -hmm. and the question if if the oppressive force is an Islamic force Mm -hmm. in the way that the Islamic State claimed to be, then all those values go out the window and suddenly it becomes a bit more difficult for them to stand up for the values they previously held to. I thought one of the most shocking examples of the West's difficulty with just saying ISIS are a bunch of neo-fascists and we should condemn them was when you as an individual were, uh, there was a, a controversy over you speaking at UCL. Mm. And and part of the controversy over you speaking at UCL, which I found infuriating and I wrote a piece at the time, was about the possibility that the YPG was a questionable organization. One Mm. of the UCL student union officials compared the YPG to Hamas and Hezbollah, Mm. which I thought was outrageous. And what they did in their Google searches, because of course these know-nothing student officials rely on Google for all their information. Or Wikipedia. Or uh, or Wikipedia. (laughs) And they found the Amnesty International report, which we probably don't have time to talk about, but I do think the Amnesty International report about YPG behavior in relation to Arab communities was a really questionable report. Widely discredited. Widely discredited. Particularly by the UN itself. Exactly. And also a really 
questionable thing to have brought up at a time when Kurdish forces were fighting against one of the most barbaric organizations of modern times. I thought the amnesty report was incredibly problematic. But their reliance on that to depict you as a problematic individual. But I thought that whole affair spoke to a kind of general Western leftist reluctance to condemn too strongly an oppressive barbaric regime Mm -hmm. if it's an oppressive barbaric regime which organizes under the banner of Islam. Yeah, it's a weakness. It's a, you're ceding, giving up a space for other people to exploit. Um, and what I mean by that is a classic example, a recent example. I don't mean to go off too much off my story, but there's the recent case in, I think it's Birmingham, where the gay rights are trying to be taught in a school and then local people, the school body is saying that we don't want gay rights taught to our kids and everything else. Now, that should be something that the left seizes and, and, and takes on board. But the trouble is, instead, they've been having a go at the BBC for even reporting it in the first place, which is, for me, intensely frustrating. We're sort of not talking about the real issues. We're just mm. we're fighting over periphery issues that aren't actually coming to the root cause of societal problems. And if you compare that to the Middle East, the fact that it took so long to get the British airstriking in support of the SDF, the argument amongst the left saying, let's not bomb Syria. We don't want to bomb Syria. It's like, we're not bombing Syria. We're bombing ISIS. Don't you understand? We're not bombing civilians. We're not bombing even the Assad regime. We're bombing the Islamic State. That was the question. That was what the government was putting forward to uh, to vote on. The fact that Jeremy Corbyn didn't understand that and, and instead simply opposed it for opposing sake is just, it's mind numbingly bad because it's the left not taking responsibility or just really taking on a cause that actually they, by nature or uh, by what they claim to stand for, is fundamentally their core values. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just deeply frustrating the, the narrative that's gone around this conflict. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. I'm incredibly sceptical about Western intervention overseas. Mm -hmm. And and a large part of that, from my personal perspective, comes from, firstly, the bombing of Yugoslavia in, in 1999 under Tony Blair, which I think caused a huge number of problems in that part of the world. But also the Iraq war, the Afghanistan intervention post 9-11, all these things which I think stored up a lot of problems, including creating the space for the rise of Islamist groups, which I think are incredibly problematic. But I think amongst some leftists or or ostensible leftists, that principle becomes so rigid Mm -hmm. and so knee-jerk in some ways that they don't allow themselves the possibility that there there is a discussion to be had mm-hmm. about assisting different groups around the world. And, and to compare what I would consider to be the incredibly ham-fisted, disorganised, in, destructive intervention in Iraq mm-hmm. in 2003, which I say as someone who was implacably opposed to the Saddam Hussein regime, mm-hmm. to compare that to some of the suggestions that were being made in 2014, 2015, 2016, that the West ought to act in some way to protect the Yazidis or to assist the Kurds, that comparison doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. I do believe that we have a sense of responsibility, that we should intervene militarily, uh, diplomatically, and in any other way, any other means that is available to us in certain circumstances. I think one of the, the great failures of the past is that we've tried to exploit situations, as we, as we mentioned before about Libya and the Arab Spring, and we haven't really seen it through to the end. Mm. I think, for example, Obama pulling out the troops out of Iraq was too soon. The decision to, even in the first place, uh, the invasion and the subsequent planning after the invasion just wasn't well thought out. And if you are going to intervene in a military way or if you're going to intervene in the sovereign affairs of another country then you have it has to be all in it can't be sort of dipping in and then getting out again very quickly or not not spending enough money and, and everything else that's one of the, the greatest fears that i have for syria that we could actually get the americans supporting the sdf defeat the islamic state only for the americans to pull out and then watch the whole thing fall to pieces again There's just a way of doing things that I think our political system is not particularly well built for. Politicians are are only in 
power for a certain time period. And many of these issues, if we are to intervene in them, will take many, many years to see through. So with multiple opinions and different political opinions all pulling foreign policy in different directions, it just means that large-scale interventions like, like Iraq and everything else are almost destined for failure. One of the things that's quite good about what's happened in Syria is that we've really sort of rewrote the rule book. Just 3,000 Americans have intervened in support of the local forces. And those are mostly special forces guys or people involved with artillery and everything else and calling in airstrikes. We've obviously got the air- aircraft in the sky as well. But just 3,000 Americans have taken the fight to the Islamic State, destroyed them in their capital city, Raqqa, where they had four years to prepare. They had tens of thousands of foreign fighters. They had hundreds of thousands of local people corrupted and forced into fighting. Uh, They had a billion-dollar budget. They had millions of pounds. They controlled a territory the size of Great Britain, and it was destroyed just by 3,000 Americans. It was a harder fight, indeed, than the... Uh, exhausted and demoralized uh, troops of Saddam, who the American military just rolled through, but required hundreds of thousands of men to do it. So by working with local groups, they've actually paved the way for how conflict may be done in the future, that identifying local groups, people who have an interest in seeing the country survive and thrive, supporting them and and actually creating a value system in, in, in the sense that people aren't fighting for money, they're actually fighting for their country. Yeah. And that's, that's the, early on when the conflict first arose. As we mentioned earlier, the fact that these are artificial states, that's why we saw the migra- migration crisis. All the people in the West were saying, all these young men, thousands of young men, all fleeing to the West and not fighting for their country. The reason that would never happen in the UK is that we do have a sense of national identity. Like, There's no way I would ever, if there was a fighting in the UK, that I would ever leave. But the reason why thousands of young men left Syria is because there was, they were, what, they fight for Assad, who's a minority government, who's a, maybe a different religion to them or a, a, have a different view of what the, the country might look like. They've seen the, the barbarity of ISIS. They've seen, the, they've seen the FSA crumble and be corrupted by Islamist jihadis. And if you've got nothing to fight for, then that's why you flee. So... It's just understanding the causes of the problems and getting to the root causes of them. And that's the problem with the West is we're far more concerned about throwing money at Turkey and Jordan to deal with the migrant crisis rather than actually throwing the money at ground forces to defeat ISIS who are causing the migrant crisis. We just have to get the right right thing in order. A lot of the problems in the Middle East and the refugee crisis too actually speaks to the situation in which uh, national identity is denigrated to such an extent that people feel no strong attachment to the nations in which they're born, which could possibly be a lesson for Remainers and other pro-EU people, but we won't get into that because that's <laughs> way too complicated. But I've got three more things I want to ask you about before we end. So the first is you mentioned Raqqa. You mentioned the fight in Raqqa. Raqqa is probably the part of Syria that most Westerners will know of and heard of and will know was the capital of the so-called Islamic Caliphate for a period of time. Can you just describe to us the role that you played in Raqqa? Because you say that 3,000 Americans liberated Raqqa, but I think that's an element of modesty there. Yeah, Because sure. the other forces, SDF, sure. Kurdish forces played a significant role. So can you just describe to us what role you and your comrades played in relation to the Raqqa situation? No, you're right. The, the Americans were typically behind the line. They were calling in airstrikes. They ro- rode around in large, very well-equipped convoys and... <laughs> They did things a little bit separately to what the Kurds were doing. Uh, they, they sort of organised. They were the, the chess players, whereas the pawns were the STF on the ground, who were the ones who were fighting street to street, alleyway to alleyway, stairwell to stairwell. For me, I arrived in June 2017. I left in October. Uh, when I arrived, the nature of the fighting was that the SDF had completely surrounded the city. I think there was about 10,000 SDF fighters. Intelligence said there was like 4,000, 5,000 ISIS fighters. That may be completely wrong because they got it very wrong in Bogus where they said there was only 6,000 people yeah. there and 46,000 people came out. But anyway, that aside, it was I just arrived in the city and after the election of Donald Trump, everything changed because Donald Trump at least said to his military when he came in, defeat the Islamic State. That's I promised that when I went for the election and that's what I'm going to deliver. So he gave the he unleashed the potential of the US military and I was a frontline witness to the 
devastating power that the coalition and the Americans actually have. There was never a moment when there were, wasn't a drone or an aircraft in the sky. ISIS positions were, were airstruck. ISIS couldn't breathe. Any sense of cohesion or counterattack were severely limited. Just also the fact that they were surrounded meant that one part of the city, the, the SDF could go on a major operation for one day or two days, seizing territory. And then the next day from the southern part of the city four kilometers away, another attack had come right. in. So the ability of to coordinate the troops on the ground meant that the STF had a fundamental advantage there. And it, it also meant for me as, as a witness to it, as a fighter on the ground, it meant that I arrived, I would go on an operation for a couple of weeks, and then I'd sit in, uh, on the front line enduring sniper fire and mortars for a couple of weeks before then going forward again. And the fighting was typically at night. Uh, we'd leave our position, 20, 30 people. We'd go down a road, literally get further and further into the city and just endure the terrible amount of IEDs, the mm. sniper fire. Just one operation alone, I can remember... Being, th being three o'clock in the morning, going down this long street in a patrol and finding a couple of old men in the street who we sort of searched, uh, made sure they weren't suicide bombers. And one of them said to us, come help us, help us. Um, my family's on the other side of this street. What we didn't realise was ISIS fighters were, were emerging out of the buildings further down the street. And there was an argument. There's some of the YPG wanted to go one way and secure a building. Some of them felt bad and wanted to rescue this family. I was stuck in the middle, barely under, trying to keep up with the, the language that was being spoken. And then all of a sudden, when the commander went to cross the road and I went with him, we were ambushed and attacked. The commander immediately killed. Uh, a friend of mine, Davarin, was shot, badly injured. I was actually hit myself in my body armor. I flung myself back and then just hell broke loose. And, and I think that gives you an example of what the fighting was like. It was random, it was bloody, it was violent. It was The fighting was confusing half the time. It was dark, you've never been to this area before. You're just amongst large buildings and you're shooting at shadows, you're shooting at flashes in the dark. Then the Americans would airstrike and half the airstrikes were so close that you're afraid they were going to kill you too. And I've got even got videos of uh, me when I've... We've been airstruck. Americans have airstruck a building opposite on the side of the road and it's brought down our buildings. I was literally buried once uh, through airstrikes. It was just incredibly violent and incredibly bloody. And that went on for months and months, enduring sniper fire, mortar fire. Friends of mine, just one minute you'll wake up and then bang, someone's been shot and they've been shot through the head or the neck and you've got to pick them up and run. And because the vehicles couldn't come so close to the front line, you have to run through the streets of Raqqa, carrying these people on your back. From June to October, it was sort of 45 degrees. It was so hot that it would that take one breath, it would suck the moisture out of your mouth. So yeah, it was just like that until one day in October, they said, stop firing, it's over. And we hadn't even defeated ISIS. We'd, we'd pinned them down into the hospital and in the stadium. And I didn't quite believe that it was all over until someone ran up to me and said, look, look at the hospital, look. And in the windows of the buildings, you could see ISIS fighters standing there where once we were allowed to shoot them, suddenly there was a peace treaty. And they limped out of the city in their cars and in their buses and they surrendered the city to the, the SDF. Uh, the reason we even allowed them to do that because there was an argument in the first place whether or not we should just go in and, and kill them all, which I'm obviously very supportive of, but they had so many hostages that mm. the very people we were supposed to liberate, the people of Raqqa, would take so many casualties that it would just exacerbate and post-ISIS insurgency would cause even more destruction and it, obviously the moral position that we were, we were stuck in. So, and we were severely criticised by the BBC for that. The BBC, Quentin Somerville, did a terrible report saying that we had done a dodgy deal with ISIS. Right. When in reality, the SDF had lost hundreds of people, had fought for months through the streets of Raqqa, had pinned ISIS down just to a few locations and had hundreds of Yazidi and other hostages. And um, the Kurds thought to themselves, right, we'll let them go. They'll release the hostages, or many of them. They'll go out into the desert and then we'll chase them and then we'll kill them next yeah. week. So <laughs> they will chase them then. But the BBC and others didn't view it that way. They, right. they saw it as a capitulation, which for me is very frustrating because armchair warriors or people <laughs> or armchair observers weren't there. They didn't see what life was like in Raqqa and it was pretty tough. That's a very useful, colourful description of what it was like in, in those battles in Raqqa. And it, it brings me on to the other thing I want to, wanted to ask you, which is the perverse situation where a lot of the sympathy, particularly among the kind of British commentariat, has been for one of the people who were on the other side of that mm. situation, i.e. Shamima Begum. And I wanted to ask you, because you've made some pretty strong, firm comments, all of which I agree with, about 
the treatment of her as a victim, the treatment mm. of her as this kind of wide-eyed child who was groomed by ISIS and didn't really know what she was doing. But more broadly than that, because the thing that strikes me is that it's absolutely astonishing, astonishing and utterly perverse that someone who was a willing participant in a regime which enslaved Yazidi women, beheaded infidels, massacred Kurdish people, should be afforded as much sympathy in Britain as she has been. So do you think that situation, the Shamima Begum debate, actually goes beyond her as an individual and speaks to kind of Western observers' moral confusions Mm. about the situation in that part of the world? I think certainly that's a good way to put it, sort of a moral confusion, a a misunderstanding and naivety of what ISIS is in the first place. As I Mm. mentioned, there is a sense that they, that some even people say that that ISIS was caused by the Americans, that, that actually Western imperialism and Western intervention in the Middle East has caused jihadism, which is complete nonsense to actually put very mildly and is the sweetest word I could possibly think of, (laughs) that in reality, there's been extremism within within Islam and through all religions really since time began or since the religions began. And this is not the first first Islamic state. There's been yeah. many of them over the year, over the years. We actually most famously fought against the Mahdi Islamic state in Sudan during the late part of the 1800s where the British Empire fought them, which also has disturbingly similar echoes to the conflict and the current contemporary conflict, but I won't go in there, but it's, it's interesting for me. What's just frustrating is the sense that there is a picture being painted about um, is certain Islamic state fighters and supporters, that they are victims. Mm. And as I said, that is part partly a, a moral confusion. It's partly a misunderstanding or naivety about the Islamic State. So there's also a sense of opportunism from certain parts of the political... So people just trying to... It's point scoring, essentially. Yeah. People who have said absolutely nothing about the, about the butchering of the Yazidi people, have said nothing about the fight against ISIS, have just completely ignored it. And then suddenly when a, when a young girl has joined ISIS and wants to return home and the British government strips her of citizenship, suddenly that's like a human rights abuse and this, they're very interested in it. And it's just frustrating for me as someone who's been involved from the very beginning, who's been campaigning, fighting on the front line for years and years and years and calling for things only to and trying to get the attention of these people as well to be messaging them on social media and via email encouraging them to speak out and work with us and getting no response and then only for them to come out with things that are actually quite damaging to us the problem is that the islamic state was a highly militaristic state everyone from from women to men to even children were indoctrinated and taught military techniques children were seen frequently on the front line including women fighters too so there is a, a sense of naivety when people say oh um, they joined the islamic state but they did nothing while they were there and they they it was an accident they shouldn't have gone these people have been well versed by ISIS. They've been told by ISIS that you cannot, now we've been defeated, you cannot hide in Syria. You have to return home if you want to survive, because if you stay here, you'll, you'll be hunted down and either killed or captured. So get back to the West, claim that you made a terrible mistake in going in the first place, and then re- restart your the network. Start talking to people again. Start, let's start fighting for the Islamic State again. It doesn't have to be straight away. It doesn't have to be in a military way. It just has to be via creating networks and, and everything else. So even inviting them back, we have to say to ourselves, like, we only have to be unlucky once. There are 40 British ISIS fighters that I know of who want to come back to the UK. And even if 90% of them did make a mistake or were, or actually just want to have peace now, they just don't want, they've had their fill of violence. They've done what they wanted to do in Syria. They want to come back now, have a slap on the wrist and get back into the community. And they may not do anything else. But even if one in 10 of them uh, decides to take a knife into a school or to build that bomb and go on the underground or indeed do anything else, why? Why risk it? Mm. What do we? What do we owe them? Those who tore up their passports, betrayed their country, went to fight for a terror organisation mm. that raped and murdered people. Uh, why should we in Britain welcome them back? And particularly in the state that the Britain is in at the moment, in terms of its well, just the fact that they they haven't got proper legislation. Just one in ten Islamic State fighters who have returned to faced court. They don't have a clear plan for returning jihadi fighters. So until the British government wakes up, develops a backbone and decides to come up with real solutions or real laws that are going to keep people safe in the UK, why the hell should we get uh, Islamic State fighters back? It strikes me as, as if a huge number of Brits had gone off to fight with Nazi Germany, which some did, of course. Mm. And after the war, it's like, bring them back, you know, bring them back into the community, it's all fine. You think, 
they were young when they went there. Yeah, they were naive. They They didn't know what they were doing. I've got one more question. I think your description of the idea that the West is to blame for ISIS is very well put. And the the phrase I sometimes use is, is Western intervention helped to create the space for the rise of ISIS, because mm-hmm. I do think there is a relationship between those two things. But I, I'm completely on your side in relation to that idea that the West created ISIS, which I think it, it is not only wrong, mm-hmm. but also there's this kind of racialized component, as if, you know, brown people in the Middle East or Westerners who join them can't possibly be evil on their own. They have to have been created by the all-powerful Western governments and Western forces. I find that an incredibly questionable argument, completely removes the agency Mm -hmm. from ISIS itself, which is an agency of evil and immorality, and suggests that they are simply the creation of people more powerful than them. So I I find that a very problematic argument. The final question, which is far too big Mm -hmm. a question to answer, Mm -hmm. but I'll try anyway, is in relation to the Kurds more broadly, because one of the things that concerns me about the Kurds, Spiked is a big supporter of the idea of Kurdistan and Kurdish independence and Rojava and the kind of democratic experiments that you alluded to earlier, where Kurdish people unlike many other groups in the Middle East, are experimenting with democracy and control and so on. That's all to the good, and I think that's all great. The thing that concerns me is that the Kurdish forces and the Kurdish people, largely out of necessity, find themselves reliant on Western support and Western intervention and and Western patronage to a certain extent. But history tells us that the West is quite adept stabbing the Kurds in the back. And right now, at the moment, as we're speaking, not only do you have Turkey lined up against the Kurds, which is re- which is fairly typical, not only do you have um, the Assad government worried about the Kurds and the Iranians worried about the Kurds in Syria because of the impact it will have on the Iranian Kurdish community, but you also have NATO itself around Rojava and other regions worrying about what will become of these autonomous regions after the conflict is resolved and after everything has gone back to a relatively peaceful situation. So my question, I guess, is how do Kurds strike that balance between looking for support from the West, which they absolutely need, while also recognising that they need to use their own resources if they're going to win those kind of rights to independence that they should have? Yeah, well, it's it's difficult because the Kurds are incredibly fractured. One of the things I've always said to the Syrian Kurds is that you should only ever bring to the West solutions. Uh, don't ever become a problem <laughs> because you've already got too many enemies to, to put yourself in that predicament. And when it comes to southern Kurdistan, so the Peshmerga, the people uh, in northern Iraq who have got the most independence of all the Kurdish regions, mm. they have fundamentally let themselves down over the past 10 years. They've built a, a system which is intensely reliant on both American handouts and also from corruption, quite essentially. Mm. Money that comes from Baghdad, that comes from the oil, that is that is pumped out of Kurdistan and other parts of Iraq that gets to the, the autonomous region of Iraq is dished out amongst a couple of certain families and tribes. So there is a question whether the Kurds in that region even deserve independence in the first place. Uh, I'm so angry with the Kurds in that respect that there is an element in me that, that says, no, if you want to earn your independence, show the West, show us that you actually deserve independence in the first place. You've built no cultural institutions. You haven't built a democracy. You haven't built a fair and open society that uh, warrants me to support you in certain ways. And I, and I mean, that's down to a certain corrupt part of the government. When it comes to the wider Kurdish population, obviously, I'm intensely sympathetic. Mm. And, and as you know, you, any Westerner can visit Kurdish areas and will be astounded by the how friendly and how progressive the people are there, how wonderful they are and how much they do deserve to have their own homeland. But the, there are fundamental questions that need to be answered amongst the Kurds themselves. The fact that they are disorganised and dis, there is very little unity between political parties. That aside, I think what the best thing the Kurds can do at the moment is they have, not exploited, that's the wrong word, but history has benefited them in the sense that the fact that they weren't independent 100 years ago, that there wasn't a greater Kurdistan. This is, there are 50 million Kurds who have their own language, culture and history. The fact they were deprived of their own nationhood in the first place was, was just terribly, it was a terrible error and a wrong on them. Since then, they have suffered and that their greatest weakness has been their disunity mm. and the, the fact that they haven't been able to build a coherent strategy on, on, to, on how they can create a nation. So I hope that they do that and that they hope, uh, hope that they work more closely together. And I hope their ideas start to 
gain more ground in the West because one of the things that's great about the Kurdish people is that they have thrown themselves in with progressive values like feminism or at least equality, sorry, within society. They have decided that democracy and, and secular values are the way forward for, their, for all parts of Kurdistan and regardless of which party you're in. So with that view, I see the Kurdish movement as almost like a, a renaissance, a spark of something that quite wonderful right in the middle of the Middle East, whereby Europe, before the renaissance, we had the Dark Ages, we had mm. governments dominated by religion and everything else. After the Renaissance, after the Enlightenment, we uh, moved into a new era for Western civilization that built wonderful buildings and introduced lovely art and everything else and wonderful literature. If the Kurds have sparked something in the middle of Syria that actually could gain a little bit more ground amongst other Arab states, then we actually could, something could change in the next 50 years or so for the Middle East. Because if they don't, if, if the Middle East sinks even further, the danger is that the Middle East will descend into a dark age, whereby what I mean by that is as time goes on and we need oil less because of the spread of the internet and everything else, sort of certain regressive ideologies that are, that are, ta- that are overriding cultures and overriding free speech and everything else in the Middle East, if they take root then the Middle East could be completely lost to mm. us. But if, if we support groups like the SDF, who actually believe in feminism, equality, secularism, everything else, then actually the opposite could be true. So the future of the Middle East could be actually quite bright. Mesa Gifford, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.